help. There we go. Well, let me begin with a question today. Do you think of yourself as a nice person? I used to imagine that I was, uh, because I grew up in a Christian home. I, I spent all my childhood in the church, and so by the time I was a teenager, I knew with confidence that what Jesus most wanted from me was that I would be a nice person, because that's what Christians are, aren't they? Um, then in my mid-teens, uh, something happened. Uh, both my parents, who, who, uh, both my parents, my parents who are both Christians, separated and got divorced. Uh, a number of their Christian friends, people that I, I looked up to and, and really admired, all of them nice people, also experienced marriage breakdowns. And I couldn't get my head around this. I mean, after all, uh, nice in my mind equated with being a mature, godly, faithful Christian. Well, happily, this upset my view of the Christian life just enough that someone was able to explain to me what the gospel was really about. But still, for a long time, I confused being nice with being Christian. And then something else happened. I got married and we had children. And uh, any illusion I still held about my own niceness evaporated pretty quickly. Um, I imagined I was patient and kind, I was generous, loving, good-humoured even. Um, the truth is, I'm actually impatient, uh, moody, introspective, selfish, and given to being very sulky. <laughs> There's no eye contact over here. Um, over the years, I found my niceness being exposed for, really, for what it really was, and that is most often an attempt to manipulate other people into liking me, and I suspect to manipulate God into liking me. And I've discovered being nice isn't enough. In fact, I can be perfectly nice without being a Christian at all. But what I've discovered is the Christian life offers us a far more substantial change than simply being nice. So as... Today, as Paul plunges further in his letter to the Colossians, uh, he really brings them to the nuts and bolts of living the Christian life well. And to do this, he uses a, a, the, the metaphor of walking. Now, this is a, a metaphor that Paul takes straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Hebrew Scriptures, your conduct in life, the way you lived, was referred to as your walk. And so, for the Old Testament people of God, walking competently, faithfully walking well, involved walking on the path set out by the, the Sinai Covenant, by the law of Moses. And as we read this morning, the metaphor of walking becomes a very prominent image in the book of Psalms as we learn to pray and sing the life of being God's people. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked. And our psalm today closed with, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. This is a very powerful metaphor that Paul brings over into his writings to the church. Uh, only now, the roadmap that he offers them for the way you walk is no longer the Old Testament law, no longer the old Sinai covenant. Now, we are followers of Jesus. Jesus who called himself the way. The earliest way that Christians were referred to in the book of Acts were actually followers of the way. 
And you might recall that last week we saw that Paul's main concern for the Colossians was summarized in chapter 2, verse 6, where he says to them, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being deeply rooted up and built up in him. Everything that follows that statement to the end of the letter is really an explanation of the Christian walk. As we saw last week, Paul goes on from that point to to, uh, give us the basis of a new identity, an identity now defined as being in Christ. And now he's going to set about explaining how that identity should lead us to live or to walk in a new way. He says it wonderfully in Ephesians when he writes to them and says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. So as we look at Paul's words today, I want to lead us through um, consideration of, of four points. Firstly, what does the Christian walk look like in practice? The second is, why do we fail then to live this way? The third is, how then in Jesus does God change us? And finally, I want to leave us with two Christian practices that train us in the Christian walk. Well, let's look at our first point. What does the Christian walk look like in practice? Well, it's easy to summarize. It consists of one word, love. In verses 12 to 14, Paul describes the essence of Christian behavior. Therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has agreements against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You might notice this is a very similar list to the one we find in Galatians 5, the famous fruit of the Spirit, neither of which is an exhaustive list of Christian virtues but both of which have in common the idea of serving your neighbor in love. Love in the New Testament has very little to do with our contemporary understanding of love as a feeling, an emotion, a desire that we feel inside of ourselves. Love is primarily, throughout the Bible, an action word. It's a verb before it's ever a noun. So love is expressed in what we do in relationship with other people. And that means the Christian walk reaches its full expression in the Christian community. Nobody is kind or gentle or patient or loving all on their own in their own secret space. These are things that that only ever get expressed in our relationships with one another. And as we go on, we will see that love of neighbour is only possible when it is first grounded in a love of God. Trying to pretend you love your neighbour if you do not love God is like buying a Tesla car but not buying the battery. Neither of those things work. Well, In today's text, Paul grounds the Christian practice of love very firmly in a set of instructions that he gives to Christian households in verses 18 to 24. Because you've heard that saying, charity begins at home. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Charity, love, is being worked out now for the Colossian church in terms of its direct relationship to the most basic social unit 
that made up their world, the household. Now, the first century household looked very different to our nuclear families living out in the suburbs somewhere. Um, They were much more like uh, the old Italian fruit and vegetable shops that you still find in places like Frio. Um, So if you've seen these places, you're familiar with a a shop that opens out into the street. Uh, It's a place of public business. It's often a place of public gathering. People come for coffee. They come to talk. And the shop itself is run by uh, multiple generations of the same family. So mum and dad are in there, uh, grandpa, grandma are in there, the kids are in there, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles. There's a few employees from outside of the family. And behind the shop or over the shop is the family home. And there's a very fluid interplay between the, the family home and the private life of the family and their business life between private and public faces. Well, first century households were exactly like this. A man and his wife with their children and their extended family, the the parents, the single aunts and aunts, the cousins, uh, their slaves and their servants running a business. In fact, the very basis of our modern word economy comes from the Greek word for a house, oikos. And, And the administration of the household and its business was termed oikonomos, economy. That's where it starts. Now, for the Christian community, this was especially important because for the first four centuries of the church, there were no buildings like this. Christians met in the houses of other Christians who were wealthy enough to have such a household. So that meant they were married, they had children, they had slaves, and they ran a business. And we meet people like this in the book of Acts. When Paul goes to Philippi, um, the believers quickly meet in the house of Lydia, who's a merchant. Um, Paul, in this letter, especially reaches out to greet the, house, sorry, the church which meets in Nympha's house. The first congregations of believers were centred around this essential social unit that made up their world. Now, before we can go on and say much more about what Paul has to say to the household, we need to address the obvious problems that this text throw up. To to our contemporary sensibilities, uh, this is is a confronting text. It's patriarchal. It's oppressive. It, It seems to support the inferiority of women and even support the institution of slavery. But you need to understand that for the first century mind... This was just simply the way things were. Of course, a wife submitted to her husband. Of course, slaves were necessary to run business and run the economy. Of course, the man over the household was its absolute lord and could do what he liked. It just went without saying. But in our minds, we see Paul reinforcing a diabolical structure. We're scandalized when he doesn't seem to give any space to 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 calling for a radical change to the social structures of the Roman world. But then, why would he? Because in Paul's mind, Rome and its structures are all passing away. They're finished. They're done. What really matters is the coming eternal kingdom of Jesus and the fact that those who are in that kingdom belong to the future world in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. 
If that's the case, then all the social inequalities of Rome and its society have already been robbed of their power. They're already meaningless. They're already doomed. And it will be left to later generations of the church then to tackle the issue of of, of women in society and to tackle uh, emancipation of slaves. What we need to hear is what first century Christians would hear as Paul writes to them. And they would have heard a radical revisioning of their primary social structure. See, if you were to write to a household with instructions, what those people would be expecting to hear is Paul addressing all the social inferiors, the wives, the children, and the slaves, on their responsibilities towards the master of the house. But Paul goes out of his way here to primarily address the husband, the father, the master of this household, and he particularly reframes this man's lordship in terms now of the lordship of Christ over the whole household. And so these relationships are now being put into a very new light as he explains to them what it means that they have a common identity as believers in Christ. So just briefly, wives are to submit to husbands, and you'll notice the word here is submit, not the word obey that he used for slaves. But notice that submission is something here that a wife is expected to give to her husband, but not something a husband has the right to come and demand or take. So submission now is revisioned in terms not of an involuntary servitude or an unequal status, but in terms of an equal status and value before the Lord. So that the man becomes head in the same way that Christ is head over his body. That is to say, the man comes to represent very clearly the way that God rules over creation and over the church. Which is to say, the man is expected to lay down his life, if necessary, and serve his household. You know, it's really hard for us to imagine what an absolutely revolutionary change of thinking Paul is calling for in that statement. As a father, the man is expected to relate to his children in in such a way that he encourages them and grows them in their faith. As a master, the man is urged to justice and he's reminded that he himself is a servant. In fact, he himself is God's slave and he relies on God's justice to him. Now, what's important for us here today is to see how the Christian virtue of love is being applied to redefine all the social relationships of the household. And that Paul is dealing then with the basic relationships that make up the church congregation. Because there's nowhere more important for love to be expressed than in the gathering of believers. Now for us, of course, we have very different social structures, but it still goes that the gospel should shape all our relationships. Relationships in our marriage, in our homes, at work, in our business relationships, in our congregation. Love then is the centre of Christian living and behaviour. As the Beatles sang in 1967, all you need is love. Thank you. What is love then? Well, Our culture assumes that love is some um, 
innate human characteristic that, that just sort of comes naturally. But it might be helpful to know that in the civilizations before Christianity, um, love did not rate in anybody's list of chief virtues. It was not important. This is love, though, the Apostle John wrote. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That was the centre of the Christian understanding of love. And it was built upon the central Hebrew understanding that this was God's greatest virtue, his greatest characteristic. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, but abounding in love. So, in Christian theology, love takes its shape from the cross. What does the Christian life look like in practice then? Well, it is a cross-shaped life. And that brings us to our second point. Why do we fail to live this out? Well, there's a reason. The reason the world was not changed for the better in 1967 when the Beatles gave us this stunning discovery um, was that we are all plagued by the same problem, the problem of the human heart. And Paul now goes to work at exposing that problem. And he does it using two metaphors. The first one is the metaphor of killing something off, putting something to death, while the second metaphor is that of changing your clothing, taking off and putting on. So if you look at verse 5, there's a command there that says, put to death, kill off whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then follows a list of five sins that Paul characterizes as typical of the way you used to walk in the life you once lived. The first four of these, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, taken all together, almost certainly refer to sins based in your sexuality. The fifth sin is greed. Now, once again, we have a list here that doesn't cover everything. It, it's a typical list, not an exhaustive list, but it gets us to the heart of the matter here. All five of these are characterized as, in the NIV, belonging to your earthly nature. It, it's, it's a clumsy phrase. It's trying to get at something here. And unfortunately, it does make it sound a little bit as though anything to do with our physical natures is somehow suspect or wrong, particularly our human desires, and especially desires involving sex or money. But the problem here is, is not with desire in itself, because before the fall of humanity, God gave human bodies, complete with all their appetites and desires, and he specifically created humans, male and female. He made them sexual beings. And he pronounced all of this very good. Human sexuality was part of God's blessing to them. This delightful intimacy between a man and a woman was, was intended to explode into human community, to grow the world. Even the concept of greed here is based in something originally good. Greed, in Greek, comes from a verb that means to grow something to an abundance. And then only by extension does it take on the meaning to um, have too much or desire to have 
too much. Again, Adam and Eve were given a garden. They were meant to enjoy its abundance. They didn't have to work for their food. They were meant to just reach out and pluck it. It was theirs for the taking. Sex on the one hand, material abundance on the other, are God-created gifts to us. The problem with human desires comes after humanity's rejection of God as king. When good human desires become runaway desires. When our appetites become our idols. And this is the real problem of the human heart. We are all idolaters by nature. We're no longer worshippers of God, but we have become worshippers of the things he has made. And when we make our desires into idols, we live as though the real significance in life is to be found in personal fulfilment. And personal fulfilment, you might notice, works in exactly the opposite direction to cross-shaped love because it is, by definition, self-centred, not other-centred, and it is a greedy way to live, never a sacrificial way to live. Not only that, it's fixated on the power of the self, my belief that I have what it takes to realise and fulfil my desires. I don't need God for anything. And I certainly don't need anything as weak as the cross. And it ultimately leads to the kind of life that exemplifies our culture. We are, on the whole, lonely people, fearful people, and we are never satisfied, no matter how much we have. The second metaphor Paul picks up in verses 8 to 14, is that of changing our clothes. And he extends this idea of idolatry even further. So in verse 8, we find a second list of sins. Things that he says we must rid ourselves of. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other, he says, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self. Now, these aren't runaway internal desires. These are community sins. This is what happens when idolatrous people try to get on together. Because runaway desires in our hearts turn other people automatically into objects. You either become to me the means to an end, you become to me the way of fulfilling my desires in one way or another, or you become to me the threat that stands in the way of me fulfilling my desires. So do you notice Paul using two metaphors here to work at two different levels? The internal level of the human heart and its desires and the external level where all of that finds expression. And yet the opposite of both of these are summed up this way. The opposite of an idolatrous heart is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the opposite of a heart that rages in hate against other people is love your neighbour as yourself. We fail to live this way because we are by nature not loving people, not even nice people. We are idolatrous people. So how then in Jesus does God change us? For many of us, certainly for those of us who grew up in the church, walking the Christian life uh, sometimes becomes a matter of willpower. All you need to do 
is work harder. Shape up. Pull up your socks. Lift your game. But part of Paul's concern for the Colossians is, and and part of what he says is hollow and deceptive about the philosophy they've begun to follow, is precisely that it has substituted external human practices, human traditions, religious observance, um, observance of the Jewish law, it substituted all of those for any substantial inward change or transformation. And such regulations, he writes back in 2.23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. And that's why Paul thinks that merely avoiding the outward expressions of sin, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, becomes part of the problem, not part of the solution. The metaphor, then, of a change of clothes as as, as a change of outward behaviour only works if it's an expression of a deep inward change. You have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of the creator. God is not in the business of improving people, but transforming people. God is not in the business of improving people. He's in the business of transforming people. We are new creations. To quote C.S. Lewis, he said, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And being nice, he said, doesn't even come into it. Those of us who by nature are naturally compassionate and gentle and kind and the like, we need redemption and renewal every bit as much as the worst sociopath. God is not in the business of making nice people after all. He is in the business of making new people. So the gospel brings change, not by giving us a new set of rules now to follow, but by giving us, but but by making us new creatures. The basic command then of this passage is not kill off the old practices, or even take off the old self, put on the new self, it's the command he begins with. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, or seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is a radically different idea to that of telling people to simply behave themselves. Even the suggestion that all you need to do is love is completely misguided. Because the basic change Paul is after is a change that takes me out of myself. It directs my attention away from my performance and my conduct back towards Christ. Remember I said last week, My record of conduct cannot condemn me, but it also cannot commend me before God. Only Christ's record of conduct 
commends me. It's a radical change of view that we need to take. And only to the extent that this new reality of God's work in Christ works its way into our hearts will we be able to change at all. The central command of the book is this. Continue to walk in him. Not change yourselves. Walk in him. But I want to say this also. Change is not the result of a psychological shift in our understanding. It's finally a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Again, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity noted that after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. Paul nowhere says, renew yourselves. He talks instead of a new self which is being renewed. If it's being renewed, who's doing that renewing? If not God himself. So in the death and the resurrection of Christ, God gives us the gift of Christ's faithful walk on our behalf so that he then becomes the centre of our attention And he also becomes the source of our power to change. It is not about what we are doing for God at all. It is all about what God must do for us. So how then in Christ does God bring about change? Well, he gives us a new life, a new identity, one that is being renewed, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. Well, finally... I said we come to two practices that train us in the Christian walk. Two things that Paul gives us. The first is worship, which is developing an attentiveness and responsiveness to Christ. The second is service, service of one another, which is their way of developing an attentiveness and responsiveness to other people. Paul brings his whole discussion on Christian behaviour and what it should look like to a conclusion in verses 15 to 17, which we read right at the start of this morning, a discussion on worship. He began by pointing out the finished work of Christ, and now he directs us in the way of setting our hearts and minds on things above. Let the message, the word of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing with gratitude in your hearts, giving thanks. Worship is that deliberate act of directing ourselves to God's person. Worship reorientates us to God as the center of reality, and it displaces the sinful self from the center of what is going on. It's the way that we set reality back into its correct perspective by setting ourselves back into a correct perspective before God's majesty and power and goodness. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Worship as an act directly undoes the idolatry of our hearts. It undoes both the power of sin and the work of sin in our lives. The primary command of today's passage, seek seek the things above, set your minds on things above, involves first and foremost learning to see 
Jesus in his rightful place, seated at the right hand of God, ruler of all reality, the bringer of a kingdom of justice and righteousness, the creator of all things. This is why Paul began his letter to the Colossians with a meditation on the person of Christ, not with their problem. To worship God is to set our feet in the way of loving him. The second practice Paul gives us is that we should serve one another. So he includes his discussion on clothing ourselves in love with a command in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now peace, in the mind of an ex-Pharisee like Paul, can surely only mean the Hebrew shalom. And shalom is far more than a, a tranquil state of being inside you, although ultimately that, that would be its result. Shalom is, is wholeness. It, it means integratedness. It means everything in its right place, everything in order, in fact brought to order under the rule of the king. And he's thinking here specifically of the shalom of the Christian community. Love for one another is grounded in our common identity in Christ. And that's an identity, he says, that sweeps away all the old social distinctions, all the old prejudices that usually divide people. He says here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Service of one another reorientates us to the needs of other people. And that directly undoes the sinful tendency to see other people as either the means to an end or a threat to be opposed. So Paul's command to kill off the old behaviours and put off the old self is an invitation to walk in the reality we experience now again as new creatures. And as new creatures, new creations, our service of other people is the way that we participate in what God is doing in their lives. Our service of other people is what gives them dignity and recognises their dignity as people made in God's image. Our service of one another is the way that we walk in hopeful expectation that they also will be made new in the image of Christ. I used to imagine I was a nice person and now I know better. I'm not nice at all. But in Christ I am a new person. I am a person being remade in the image of Christ. And that means my life should increasingly become cross-shaped in its dimensions and practices. Because God through Christ, by the Spirit, is transforming me. However slowly that might be happening. And this doesn't happen by my willpower. I do need to give it my assent. I do need to say, yes, please. I do need to ask for help. The Christian walk, the whole metaphor of a walk, implies that I am actually going to move my feet. But the practices that cultivate this walking, the practices that put me in the way of Jesus, are the practices of worship and service. Let me pray.